we'll learn to love each other. Just give us more time. And when we had about four weeks of college left our senior year, between the two of us, we had about seven term papers to write, about six foreign languages to learn, and about 17 chemistry labs to finish. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales, and fairy tales, and folk tales, and personal and family tales, and finding that there's a gift for you in each story that we bring to you here on the show. Stories to warm your heart and lift your spirit and give flight to your imagination. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's always a pleasure for me to be with you during any hour that you spend on the Appleseed. We're glad to have you with us today for what's going to be a terrific hour. We've got stories from Bob Reiser. He'll tell us a story called Ishtar about an impossible love. And you'll hear a story called Think, Live, Fly from a collection of stories called Six Stories Tall from David Vanadia. And you'll hear a tall tale from the West Virginia tall tale teller Bill Lepp, a story called When Pigs Fly from a collection of stories called The Teacher in the Patriotic Bathing Suit. But before we get to any of that, we want to remind you that you can visit us at byuradio.org slash Appleseed to find all of the episodes of this show, nearly 2,000 episodes filled with stories for you and your family. And you'll also find some little podcast-only extras. In fact, we call them extras, Appleseed extras, mini episodes of the show, a single story long, just a a few minutes long, usually, in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great story or song or conversation. If you go to the website today, you'll find, as an Appleseed Extra waiting for you there, a story called The Stone Cutter, told for you by Nora Dooley. It's a very old tale about a man who works cutting stone each day and thinks that there ought to be more. And well, that's just the beginning of the story as he comes to appreciate all of the things that he has after a great adventure. Again, that's in uh, at byuradio.org slash Appleseed, or Google the Appleseed podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day on the show. And the first story that we're going to bring you today is, again, a story called Ishtar. It's from Bob Reiser. Bob Reiser, who has worked with uh, the great Pete Seeger on a book about the civil rights movement and who fills storytelling shows and albums with uh, stories that are designed to help us understand one another. Sometimes they're fables about animals. Sometimes they're folk tales from one part of the world or another. This story comes from a collection of stories called An Evening with Grandpa Abe and Uncle Ahmet, stories from both the Jewish and Islamic traditions. This one, again, is called Ishtar, about an impossible love between two young lovers, but... Through determination and a longing desire to be with one another, the young couple shows us how the impossible really is possible. Here's Ishtar from Bob Reiser here on The Appleseed. Long ago, when the world was young and the whole idea of love was as new and as fresh as young lovers themselves, there lived a beautiful princess in a great city and a great kingdom at the crossroads of the world. 
Ishtar, the king's daughter, had hair that gleamed like a night full of stars, and eyes that shone like lanterns in the darkness and in a heartless world, where thieves grew fat and children starved in the streets. Everyone was drawn to her goodness, her beauty. Young men fell over one another to woo the princess, but the king pushed them all away until one day, as the royal family sat on their balcony eating their royal lunch, the captain of the guard came running up to the king. Your majesty, there's a stranger in the courtyard. It's a great wizard. The king and his family looked down. Sure enough, below stood a man in a cape as blue as the sky, entertaining the crowd by changing weeds into beautiful yellow and red birds. The king laughed. Well, let's see if he can turn those into coins. <laughs> and so the stranger was brought to the terrace. And like everyone else, the wizard stared at Ishtar. But this time, Ishtar stared back. This was the most beautiful man she had ever seen. He smiled waved his hands, and white blossoms fell from the sky, scenting the air with lilacs. The king harumphed. <laughs> Not bad. Now, can you bring gold from the sky? Hmm? The wizard, who called himself Shamai, shrugged, and gold coins showered from heaven. Ow! cried the king as one hit him on the head. Shamai bowed, produced an umbrella and handed it to the king. Ishtar giggled and gazed at Shemai. Instantly he transformed himself into an eagle, flew into the air and returned with a single perfect red rose, which he dropped into the maiden's lap. And then, looking human again, he bowed. Ishtar blushed like a pomegranate. But the king was thinking... He could do a lot worse than have this wizard as a son-in-law. And so the king and queen invited the stranger to stay. And they took every opportunity to leave the young people alone. And soon enough, nature took its course. One evening, on the terrace, Ishtar stood with her beloved. Oh, how beautiful are the stars! You like them? He waved his hands, and bright blue and silver lights flashed across the sky. Oh, no, 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 she cried. Don't make the stars fall. Don't worry. He picked up a brilliant blue stone and placed it into Ishtar's hand. These are only diamonds. Well, soon... Words were whispered, kisses exchanged, permissions granted, and a wedding date set. Ishtar couldn't wait until she could be with her beloved day and night. But something was wrong. She began to have a strange, recurring dream. In it, she stood in front of the palace. But it was only broken stones. And the gardens of orange and fig trees were trampled into the mud. The whole beautiful city was smoking rubble. And then, the night before the wedding, she had the most frightening dream of all. 
an old man stood in the ruins. He was dressed in beggar's rags. Ishtar! He stared at her. His eyes were on fire. Ishtar! You must not marry Shammai. Who are you? Enoch. Well, I don't know any Enoch. Then ask Shammai. Ishtar woke up, terrified. She ran. She woke her parents. And sitting on their bed, shivering, she told them about the dream, the trampled garden, the ravaged city, the words of Enoch. The king soothed her. Ishtar, you're a princess. Would you let a, a dream rule your life? No. Good. By morning, your fears will disappear like dewdrops. You'll see. And he kissed her cheek and sent her back to bed. Now what the king and queen and Ishtar did not know was that the stranger was not a wizard at all. He was not even human. He was an angel sent by the Almighty to save humanity, to teach people to cherish one another, not to kill each other. And if he failed, humanity would end. But something had gone wrong. The angel had fallen in love and forgotten everything. Well, as soon as Ishtar lay down, her dream returned. The burned city, the broken palace, the old beggar. You're just a dream. Now go away. I marry tomorrow. Tears ran from the beggar's eyes. Then this is the world you bring. He raised his hand. And the burned city, the towers, everything disappeared. And now... There was nothing but water. No tree, no bird, no being remained. This is your world if you marry Shammai. Ishtar woke. Her heart was thundering. She ran to the window. She heard the nightingale. She smelled honeysuckle from the garden. She saw the familiar towers of the city. It wasn't too late. She ran to the guest house. She shook her lover. Shammai! Shammai, wake up! And when he opened his eyes, she told him her dream, her vision of a world turned to water, the words of the beggar. Who is Enoch? Shammai began to shake. She reached to comfort him, but he pulled back. Enoch is God's messenger. And his eyes grew wide, like a man waking from a dream. Oh, dear God, what have I done? And at last he told her everything. He sounded insane, of course. But his eyes, like the eyes of the beggar in the dream burned with fire. She believed him. I'll help you. No! Ishtar pulled back as if she had been slapped. Ishtar, if we marry, our children would cover the earth with poison, with filth. The Almighty would have to destroy everything. Oh, our children wouldn't do that. They'd have my powers 
and your human feelings. They would be uncontrollable. Now, please, let me go. But unbelievably, he found himself pulling her closer. Well, then go! She was furious, but unbelievably, she held on to him. Even knowing what she knew, she trembled with wanting him. Below them, the palace was waking up. The wedding preparations were beginning. Soon it would be too late. The lovers clung to one another, unable to move. Ishtar looked wildly around for a place to run. She knew that wherever she went, Shammai would follow, and wherever he went, she would follow, no matter what the consequences. Oh, please, God, help us! We can't do it alone! Don't let us bring the end of the world! We'll learn to love each other. Just give us more time. And with that... There was a rush like a thousand wings, and Ishtar found herself lifted into the sky. Stars and moons and worlds upon worlds spun around her, and she closed her eyes in terror. And when she opened them again, she sat high above the earth in a place where she could see everything, but where no one but God could touch her. And all around her angels sang all except one, who sat at the opposite end of the sky, gazing at her, weeping. So, Ishtar did stop the destruction. God did as Ishtar asked. He gave us time. Well, he must have. Look what we do to one another. Look at the children with rocks in their hand, bleeding to death in the sand. Look at the mothers, crying helplessly into an empty sky. Why does God still let us live? Maybe he still has hope for us. Maybe he's still waiting. Waiting for us to learn to love one another even a little. Just before sunrise, look up at the eastern sky. You'll see her watching us, still waiting. Ishtar, the morning star. Ishtar, a story told for you by Bob Reiser. What a pleasure to hear that tale at the beginning of our hour together today. You know, not uh, too many years ago, at my first visit to the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, I was uh, looking for a bite to eat and found an all-you-can-eat spaghetti dinner for sale in an upstairs room of a restaurant. And I sat down and found myself sitting there with Bob Reiser, and we had a great conversation. And I remember uh, that shared moment every time I hear a Bob Reiser story. Always a pleasure uh, for a tale to bring back a memory. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share as stories with the people that you love. And if that happens, write them down and share them with us. Send them to our email address, theappleseed at byu.edu. There's a lot more coming up uh, in just a little bit. You're going to hear a story from David Vanadia called Think, Fly, 
live. You won't want to miss a word. Entries in the Radio Family Journal and a conversation with a friend coming up too. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you in this hour of the Apple Seed. A moment ago, a story called Ishtar from Bob Reiser. And in just a moment, you're going to hear a conversation with Antonio Kosha about one of the potent memories that helped inspire him to become the mime and storyteller that he is today. But first, because we know that uh, the sharing of memories can sometimes spark a thought that can become a story to share around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory of mine. It's a memory about names, and it's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. For the last 25 years, my wife has directed a children's Shakespeare company. And if you're thinking that sounds awesome, let me tell you, it is. It's as awesome as it sounds. Unless you don't think that sounds awesome, and then it's way more awesome than it sounds. I mean, watching nine-year-old Macbeth's four-year-old thugs lying in wait to waylay the three-year-old children of eight-year-old Macduff... It's something. I can't say enough about it. Our children have been performing in that company since they were little kids. But the company didn't start out performing strictly Shakespeare plays. It started out as a community group of moms in a little rural town wanting to make up a play for their kids to be in. And they decided it should be a musical because all the kids wanted to sing. And they decided that it should be a musical on the topic that the kids all wanted to treat in an original stage piece, and that topic was knights. Knights in shining armor. Knights and plenty of damsels. Knights and plenty of damsels and a dragon. A musical about knights and damsels and dragons. And so... Everyone got to work. Well, someone who had a piano started writing the music. And if you're imagining kind of a cross between Spamalot and, oh, Puff the Magic Dragon, you should be. That's what it was. Only you should probably sprinkle whatever's in your imagination with a little Sesame Street and maybe a little Jesus wants me for a sunbeam. And now you've got it. Every kid in the show, in addition to memorizing some lines and learning some songs, had a job, and the job was to think up a knight name, Sir something of something or other, or Lady something of something or other. And they all went to work. They all came up with all sorts of stuff. Sir Galaham of Gilgargle, or Sir Waffle House of Wentworthington, or Lady Flint Fluffle of Rufelialand. And Noah, our son, had the same assignment as everyone else. He was supposed to think of a name, a knightly name for his character in this musical play. And the thing was, he was in that stage that I think everyone goes through, at least I did, when I was the age that Noah was when he went through this stage. It's the stage in which you hate your name and wish that your parents had named you something else. I went through that stage. I didn't like my name, Sam. I hated it. And I didn't just wish my parents had named me something else. I knew what I wished they had named me. I wished they had named me Mark, 
Mark was the name of the guy that, to me, was the coolest member of the superhero-costumed spaceship-flying team at the center of G-Force, which was my favorite cartoon. Mark. My sister had it even worse. There was a year, maybe, when my little sister Eliza wouldn't answer at all to her name and would only respond to the name she wished she had been given by our parents, Jessica. It wore off, but only after a long, long time. Well, you know the phase, maybe. And Noah was right in the middle of that phase when he'd been given the assignment to think of a knightly name. And Noah, like me when I was his age, knew not only that he wished his parents had named him something else, but also knew what name he wished they had named him. And so in his head, when he was given an opportunity to think up a name that people were actually going to call him, even for a little while on stage, there was no room for Sir Anything of Anything in his head, but only for the name that during that phase of his life he wished he were actually called. And so it was that in the nightly musical extravaganza among the Spamalot slash Puff the Magic Dragon slash Sesame Street slash Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam tunes, everyone in the audience got this little stream of knights and ladies coming one by one to the edge of the stage and introducing himself or herself. And we met Sir Galaham of Gilgargle and Sir Waffle House of Wentworthington and Lady Flint Fluffle of Rufelia Land and finally Noah, who walked to the edge of the stage and said, Sir Kevin. Yeah, we got it, Noah. Kevin. Well, he snapped out of it, we think. Noah is grown up now. He's noble and brave and chivalrous. He retained a few of those knightly characteristics, but no more Kevin. At least, he doesn't make us call him Kevin when we want to talk to him. He likes his name just fine, we think. Though even now, when Noah plays video games and has to put a name in the field for a cool video game name, he still, every time, uses the name Kevin. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. In just a moment, you're going to hear a story from David Venedia called Think, Live, Fly from his collection of stories, Six Stories Tall. You won't want to miss that. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and of course through the telling of tales from teller to listener, sometimes passed down through generations and generations, and talking about some of those ways in which great stories get into our hearts and minds is something that we love to do with friends here on the Appleseed. I'm so pleased to be joined in conversation by the great storyteller Antonio Rocha. He joins me from his home far away from the Appleseed studio. Antonio, it's so great to have you with me. It's so good to be with you. <laughs> and I'll tell you, Antonio, we always encourage them to, to, to check you out on YouTube or on your website because yes. so much of uh, the storytelling in your performances is physical. You're not only a wonderful storyteller, but a, a, an accomplished mime and actor as well. And that goes way back, doesn't it? That, you, your it mime roots go pretty far back. Yes, yes. My mime roots go back... Actually, the foundation of all my mime actually started um, when I was, I, I moved a lot when I was a kid, moved mm -hmm. a lot. So I remember 
more or less how old I was, depending on where I was living at the time. And this is uh, the same house um, that I was um, um, talking to you on another time yeah. ab about the bicycle. Um, but uh, I had to be 13, 14 years of age here. Yeah. Uh, maybe a one year younger, uh, maybe uh, 12. Um, and there's this program in Brazil that's still very popular. It airs on Sunday nights. It's a two hour uh, variety show program. It has news. It has uh, somebody's new song, you know, a popular Brazilian singer um, premiering a new, uh, uh, a brand new song. Yeah. And all of a sudden they'll cut to the US and show a stunt. I remember watching people going down the Niagara Falls on a barrel, watching this show when I was a kid. And, and this show is still going, it's called Fantástico, meaning fantastic. So it has all sorts of things. And, and my family watched this show, religiously so, every Sunday night from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. It is a two hour program. And we would watch it because there are interesting things happening every once in a while. And I was there, sitting um, with everybody watching when all of a sudden they said and from Monte Carlo the casino right this yeah. is the famous European casino in Monte Carlo in Monaco and um, and uh, and the camera goes and shows all these people wearing tuxedos and gowns and jewelry and expensive and the camera goes on stage and they're going to show a, a, a short show. And it's a mine. It's a man wearing a leotard. He's all in black. And he's on stage acting like a gorilla. And I'm watching this man for the very first time. I had never seen a mime like that. Could almost say that it was before I ever saw Marceau Marceau. Hmm. I had seen Chaplin movies. Yeah. Th this man is on stage. The stage is bare. And he's pretending to be an ape. And I'm like, this man is an ape. And then he moves a little bit more. And now I see that he's a caged hmm. ape. He's touching the bars. And I'm like, this is a cage. And little by little, more of the world of this caged ape starts to be revealed through hmm. the mime of the actor. And less of my house starts to appear. It's like the walls disappeared. I didn't know if I was sitting or standing. The people in the living room disappeared. It was just me and this performance. It was as if a little box in my brain from a long time ago had been discovered and opened up. Yeah. I'm like, I'm really digging this man. I'm really into what he's doing. And then he opens the cage. The gorilla parts two of the bars and the people stop eating halfway. You know, they're drinking and eating as they're watching this in, in the casino and they stop their fork halfway up. You know, they, they, they stop their sip halfway through because now the cage is uh, is broken yes. and the gorilla steps out of the cage and he starts to go through the people's stuff he opens purses he smells people's hair he touches people's food and and grabs people's rolexes and they're looking and he's looking and he's looking at this the people and he starts getting depressed He's first curious. He comes out of the cage. He's not enraged. Yeah. He's not a, a danger. He's just curious. He's a curious ape. And as he realizes how people live, he starts to get more and more depressed. Hmm. Is this 
what you call humanity, this facade, this fake hair, this perfume, this jewelry. Is, is this what you value? It was what I, I remember this and it was so vivid. And I was a kid watching this. And then he slumps and slumps some more. The energy is completely different now, right? He's yeah. full of energy at first. Now the energy is gone. And he slowly walks back into the cage the same way he came out and he locks himself back in. What, what uh, an impactful performance, you know? He'd rather yeah. be caged than out amongst the people he had just met. Huh. And, and people, of course, go crazy, applaud him, even the people he was <laughs> judgmental about. <laughs> and, and then I forgot all about it. Hmm. I forgot, uh, I, it was all about it, you know, my house disappeared, all yeah. that, you know, the TV disappeared. Yeah. I was with this guy for what, five minutes yeah. that he did this? And then it was not until I was 19 uh, yeah. uh, that a mime came through town. I was living in a different city, yeah. very far away from that house. And my sister, Vera, who I have four older sisters, mm -hmm. she said, a, a friend of mine is coming through town. He's a mime. He's just back from Europe. I think you would enjoy, you know, I've, I've watched you and, <laughs> and I, I think that uh, you are about movement and why don't you go take some mime? And that was the beginning of everything else. We don't realize, do we? We don't realize some of the most foundational moments of our lives yes. as they're happening to us, you know? No. As they're no. happening to, they're just going by. And then it's only years later that we look back and we think, good heavens, that moment was yes. the beginning of it all, you know? It's been yes. such a pleasure to chat with Antonio. Antonio, thanks for joining me. Thank you, too, Sam. Thank you. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with the great storyteller and mime, Antonio Rocha. We'll work to have him back with us on the show. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story called Think, Live, Fly from David Vanadia in just a moment. And then, speaking of flying, a tall tale from the West Virginia tall tale teller Bill Lepp called When Pigs Fly. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you in this hour of The Appleseed. Great to have that conversation with Antonio Rocha about a memory important to his career as a storyteller and mime. Up next, a story from David Venadia about a guy who has a dream of flying winds up being tougher than he thought. Here's the story, Think, Live, Fly, from David Vanadia on The Appleseed. This man grew up with a great love for the sky. Ever since he was a child, he wished that he could fly. He used to go to the top of a large grassy hill and lay flat on his back, arms outstretched, gazing up into the blue. And there he would imagine himself soaring through the images that he saw in the clouds. And at first, the adults in his life thought that it was cute. 
But as time went on and he began to neglect his responsibilities to dream of flying, the adults got annoyed, and they told him he'd better stop, that he'd better get his feet back on the ground. They told him to get himself a good education so he could get a good job. And over time, the boy grew into a man. He got himself a good education, a good job, a nice car, his own apartment, and a VCR that he could program with his voice. He had all those wonderful things, and yet still it seemed like something was missing from his life. Every day he would go to work and go home. He would feel just plain empty inside. One day, on his way home from work, he decided to rent himself a movie. He stopped at his local video store, carefully chose a comedy, and on his way out the door, he fell. And he found himself laying flat on his back, arms outstretched. His head had hit the concrete rather hard, and he was unconscious for half a second. When he came to, something inside of him sort of snapped. Because there he was, laying there, looking straight up into the sky. And at that very moment, he remembered his childhood dream and realized that dream was what was missing from his life. So he sold his car, he got out of his lease, he quit his job, and he gave away the VCR. And he took only the things that he needed to sustain life. And he moved to the top of a large cliff, overlooking a valley with mountains in the distance. And there, he promised himself that he would fly across the valley and land on the peaks. When he thought about how he would do that, he noticed above him there were planes flying. And he thought if planes made of steel could hold the weight of 250 passengers, then certainly steel would be able to hold his weight. So he went and got himself the material, and he built himself the most beautiful set of eagle-beak-shaped steel wings that he possibly could. And early in the morning, in the bright orange sunlight, he stood, toes on the edge of the cliff. He spread the steel wings, and he stopped. And he thought, no, 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 no. These wings are much too heavy. I'll just plummet to the rocks below. But he did not give up. He liked the wings idea, and he thought he would go with a lighter material, something that was strong enough to hold his weight, yet light enough to glide on the air, and wood seemed like the answer. So he got himself some wood, and he built himself the most beautiful set of wooden wings that he possibly could, taking care to etch out little feathers into them. And early in the morning, in the bright orange sunlight, he stood, toes on the edge of the cliff. He spread the wooden wings, and he stopped. And he thought, no, no, no. These wings, too, they're much too heavy. 
I'll just plummet to the rocks below. But he didn't give up, because at that very moment, he noticed there were birds above him flying around, and those birds flew on feathers. And that was the answer. Over the next few days, he went around to the rocks below, collecting feathers that fell from different birds, and sometimes he would even go as far as to climb up into nests and pick out feathers from there. And the third set of wings he built was the most exquisite set of wings out of all three, because that set of wings was made with all different types of bird feathers, and they were all different colors. And early in the morning, in the bright orange sunlight, he stood, toes on the edge of the cliff, spread the feathered wings, and he stopped. And he thought, no, no, no. These wings, too, they won't hold my weight. I'll just plummet to the rocks below. He felt like a complete failure, like an utter fool. That evening, he sulked and he burned all three sets of wings to stay warm. It wasn't until the next morning, when the bright orange sunlight shined on his face, that he had a revelation. He realized that all the wings he had built were simply parachutes for his fall. In the midst of that revelation, he walked over, stood, toes on the edge of the cliff, he spread his own wings, and he flew off the cliff. story shared with you by storyteller David Vanadia from a collection of stories called Six Stories Tall. And we're going to wrap up with something from the West Virginia tall tale teller Bill Lepp. This is a story about a dad who tells his son that he won't graduate from college until pigs fly. Well, like many things in a Bill Lepp story, the impossible can happen. Here's the story. When pigs fly, happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. I went to West Virginia Wesleyan College in Buchanan, and I had a really good friend. His name was Paul, and Paul was a mosquito of a man. He was about 5'2", and he weighed about 98 pounds, and about 44 of those pounds were hair. He had a tremendous head of red hair and then a giant red biker's beard. And in some strange genetic fashion, the beard and the hair were different shades of red. 
So it looked like to me that there were two different factions of red ants battling for supremacy of Paul's head. And when he didn't have any clothes on, which unfortunately was more often than not, you could see patches of red hair all over his body. And it always seemed to me that the red ants that got killed would tumble down his body and just get stuck in clumps somewhere along the way. But he was a genius. He was an absolute genius when it came to tinkering with things. And when we had about four weeks of college left our senior year, between the two of us, we had about seven term papers to write, about six foreign languages to learn, and about 17 chemistry labs to finish. But about four weeks from the end of school, we decided that we just weren't going to do any of those things. And because we had thought about doing them, we had collected a huge amount of library books in our dorm room. We had about, I don't know, maybe 50 reference books in our dorm room. And we decided that the thing to do would be to take those books back to the library so that someone else would have the opportunity to use them, some student who was actually going to try and do his or her work. So we loaded ourselves down with reference books. We each had them stacked from about our thigh to our chin. And we waddled across campus to the library, and we sort of kicked the doors open. There were these great swinging doors in the front of the library, and we sort of kicked them open. And about 10 yards in front of the doors was the circulation desk. And standing at the circulation desk when we kicked our way in was Dr. Milton Toast. And Dr. Milton Toast was the dean of the library and the dean of students. Now, we all called him Dr. Milk Toast because he had not been out in the sun for about 35 years, and he had the complexion of skim milk. We were pretty sure that he was the product of a strange union between, like, a cave-dwelling cricket and a zombie. <laughs> but when we kicked our way into the door, the door swung open, and Dr. Toast sort of went, <gasps> like that, which was a reaction that Paul and I were used to whenever we walked into a building that housed, you know, antiquities or art or, or rare books. <gasps> Sort of like that. And we just kind of shuffled on up to the desk with those reference books. And Dr. Toast said, it's always a pleasure to see you, boys. I trust you haven't brought those tiny fishing poles with you. Now, this was a reference to an embarrassing but understandable incident when Paul and I had brought tiny fishing poles to the library after we heard that they had microfish at the library. <laughs> But we walked up to the circulation desk and we put those books down on the desk and Dr. Toast started to look at them and he said, these are reference books. We said, yeah, that's why we brought them back. He said, these are reference books. I said, yeah, we found them in the dormitory. We thought we'd bring them back. He said, these are reference books. I said, I know, that's why we brought them back. He said, reference books cannot leave the library. I said, I know, that's why we brought them back. He said, reference books cannot leave the library. And it suddenly dawned on me what he was saying. He wasn't saying that they weren't allowed to go out of the library. In his world, he thought that it was an impossibility for a reference book to leave the library. You could check out a toilet from his library easier than you could check out a reference book. Tectonic plates cannot cease to shift. The sun can't rise in the west. Reference books can't be checked out of the library. So he was sort of getting pale and, and even more jittery than he usually was, and we just said, well, we brought him back, and we left as quick as we could. And we got back to our dorm room, and there in the middle of the floor was the B Encyclopedia. <laughs> I said, Paul, why didn't you take this one back? 
And he said, well, I thought of something I can do for the next four weeks. And he opened it up to nearly the back to an article on a man named Bushnell. And here I got to throw a parenthesis into the story, because for the next few minutes, the story will be true. And when we get to the end of the truthful part, I'll throw that parenthesis, that end parenthesis up, so you can see where you can quit believing the story anymore. But he turned to this article on Bushnell, and Bushnell was a guy who had invented the very first submarine. He invented it during the Revolutionary War in 1776. And essentially what he did was he took a big wine cask and he put a seat in it and he put a couple of pedals in it and a couple of levers and a couple of handles so that he could uh, adjust the, the uh, yaw and the pitch of the submarine from the side. He had a propeller on the top that he could crank so he could go up or down and he had propellers on the back and a rudder so that he could steer and go in whatever direction he needed to. And then he had taken a drill bit and put that on the top of the submarine. And what Bushnell's plan was, was to go into the Boston Harbor, go up underneath British warships, drill holes in the bottom of them, attach bombs, and then cruise away in a submarine before the bomb exploded. This was sort of the original homeland security force. But what he didn't know is that the British warships were now encased in brass on the bottom. They were trying to keep barnacles off, so his drill didn't work. But the submarine did, and he called it the turtle. And so Paul said to me, and this is the end of the parenthesis, Paul said to me, I'm going to build a submarine before the school year is over. Well, he went out and he bought from a farmer, he bought about a 180-gallon heating oil tank. You know those old oval heating oil tanks? He had a couple of football players carry it up to the third floor where we lived, and then he went out and bought two 55-gallon drums. He took those up to his room, and then he went home for the weekend. And when he came back, he had all of his welding equipment with him. And you could hear him in there at night welding and sawing away on these three giant metal casks as he put this submarine together. And I think it's safe to say that Paul was the only guy on the third floor McCuskey dormitory that had an active shipyard going on in his room. <laughs> but when he was finally finished, he had an open house and he let us all come in and see it. And he had taken that big oil drum and he had welded those 55-gallon drums to the side of it. And he had painted the whole thing battleship gray. And I said to him, Paul, that sort of looks like two baby hippopotami suckling on their mother. <laughs> well, that made him mad, so he kicked us all out of the room, bought some pink paint, painted the whole thing pink. And then it looked like two piglets suckling on a sow. But he seemed to enjoy that, so he painted eyes and put noses on them. But he let us look inside, and it was really a genius thing. He had cut off a bicycle and the seat so you could sit on that, and he still had the pedals and the chains. You could pedal the pedals. The chain ran underneath of him. Out the back of the submarine, there was a propeller so he could go forward, and then he had stabilizers on the side, and then he had these two enormous air canisters, like scuba divers wear, hooked up to those 55-gallon drums. And through a series of knobs, he could turn the knobs and fill those drums up with water so that he could go down, and then he could blast air into them so that he could rise back up to the surface. Well, it was a beautiful thing, and he called it the Turtle 2. And he said to me, I want you to help me test drive it. And I said, Paul, there is no escape hatch on that thing. And he said, well, I'm an optimist. And that was the first time in my life that I realized that optimist and moron were synonyms. I said, I don't think I want to help you test this thing. And he said, oh, all you got to do is stand by the side of the river, and if I don't come back up after 15 minutes, you call a tow truck, and they'll come in and we'll just haul me out of the river. I said, oh, I can do that. 
I said, where are we going to test it? And he said, well, I found a deep part of the, of the uh, Buckhannon River way down past French Creek. He said, we'll go down there. I said, how are we going to get it there? And he showed me that he had welded some axles to the bottom of that submarine, and he had put Yugo rims on those axles. And he said, we're going to take it out, we're going to put it on the railroad tracks, and we're just going to push it down to that section of the river. I said, Paul, I don't think that's a good idea, pushing the submarine down railroad tracks. He said, oh, these are deserted railroad tracks. He said, with God as my witness, these are deserted railroad tracks. Now, when your good friend says, with God as my witness, you ought to believe him. But there's not every reason. You should ask yourself a couple of questions. First of all, you should ask yourself, have I known this person ever to express any faith in any deity whatsoever? <laughs> He's from Maryland. Has he ever been to this stretch of railroad tracks? And I know now that you should ask those questions, but I didn't know it then. So we went to take the Turtle 2 out of his dorm room, but we found out that it was a lot bigger than his door. So what Paul did is, is he went up on the roof of the uh, dormitory and he rigged up a little crane. And then he prepared what you might call a small explosive device. And he put it right next to the window in his dorm room. And what he was going to do was blow out a small hole in the side of the wall, take the window out, and then the hole would be large enough that we could just lower the Turtle 2 safely down into the bed of a pickup truck. Well, the bomb was slightly larger than he had anticipated. And when it exploded, it scared me so much that I sort of jumped. And when I did, I bounced into the Turtle 2, which immediately started to roll out the hole before we could grab the ropes on the pulley to slow it down. Fortunately, its fall was broken because Dr. Milton Toast just happened to be pulling in at that moment and his brand new car, and that broke the fall. We tried to explain it to him, but it's difficult to reason with a man who has just seen three pigs falling on him and is presently being extracted from his brand new car by the jaws of life. So we just sort of let it go. We loaded the uh, Turtle 2 up into the back of a pickup truck. We went out to this with God as my witness deserted stretch of railroad tracks, laid the Turtle 2 on the tracks, and Paul had some motor oil with him. We put a little motor oil on each one of those Yugo rims, and we could just push the thing right along the tracks. We'd push it, get it going up a pretty good speed, and then we'd just kind of jump on and ride it for a while. It's kind of like when you're in the grocery store and you got the cart and you see how fast you can get it going down the aisle and jump onto it before your mother yells at you. And it was about this time that I realized, as we were pushing the Turtle 2 down these railroad tracks, that every college male should be required to bring his mother with him to school. <laughs> I think far fewer dumb things would happen in college if you had your mother with you most of the time. But our mothers weren't there to tell us, don't do that, that's stupid. So there we were, pushing the Turtle 2 down the railroad tracks. We came to a slight downgrade. We just jumped on the thing. We got up a pretty good head of speed. We could just ride on top. And as we were riding up on top, I had a little bit of leisure time. And every now and again, we'd just drip a little motor oil on the rims to keep them flowing. And as I was doing that, I looked down at the railroad tracks. And I noticed that they were shiny. And I don't know what you know about railroad tracks, but they're made out of steel. And they can rust overnight if you have a heavy dew. If you have a steady stream of trains coming up and down the tracks, the tracks will shine like mirrors. And as I was dripping oil on the Yugo rims, it suddenly occurred to me that I could see my reflection going by at about 90 miles an hour on those tracks. 
I said, Paul, are you sure these tracks are deserted? We were coming around the curve about that time. And he said, with God as my witness, these tracks are deserted. And just then we heard the low whistle of a train. And as we came around that curve, we saw a 168-car CSNX monster train loaded down with 19,364 tons of pure West Virginia bituminous coal coming right at us. And I could hear a little sloshing noise inside that submarine for the first time. I said, Paul, what's that? He said, oh, I couldn't get all the heating oil out of the tank. But it didn't really worry me except when I was welding. So I didn't pay any attention to it. And just about that time, that train hit us, and it changed our direction dramatically. It shot us back down the tracks, and the cattle guard on that train caught up underneath the submarine, and when we got to the curve in the tracks, it just lifted us and shot us straight up into the sky. Now, the friction had been so great on those Yugo wheels that the oil on them had caught on fire, and now there was a hole in the bottom of the submarine, and heating oil was flowing out of that tank, and as it hit those Yugo rims, it ignited. So we had just gone from two guys riding three pigs down the railroad tracks to two guys riding a rocket-propelled submarine through the sky. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how I could save us as we started going over the top of campus there, and right in the middle of West Virginia Wesleyan campus, if you don't know, there's a giant chapel, and that chapel has a huge steeple, and I realized this was the only chance I was going to have to save us. So I reached in my pocket, and I pulled out my stainless steel 74-function Swiss Army-type knife. And I quickly opened up the anchor and the come along. And I took the anchor and I swung it above my head a couple of times on that big chain. And just as we went over the steeple, I slung it out and caught the steeple with the anchor, put the chain on the come along and started cranking as hard as I could. We made smaller and smaller revolutions around that steeple till I felt we were going slow enough that I just disconnected and we started flying towards the ground. Paul was up on top of that submarine with his hat waving and his legs kicking, doing his best slim pickings and Dr. Strange love as we headed toward the ground. But we weren't headed directly toward the ground. We were headed toward an office window. And we saw in that office window a figure standing with an expression on his face that only a man who has seen three pigs flying at him twice in one day can have. Dr. Milton Toast was drinking tea in his window. But I think what surprised him more than anything, more even than the three pigs flying at him the second time that day, was that Paul had on the front of the submarine in a waterproof case, he had enshrined the bee encyclopedia <laughs> as sort of a monument to Bushnell. So now... Dr. Milton Toast was watching the bee encyclopedia flying directly at him, and it crashed through the window and hit him right in the chest and knocked him clear across his office. And when he recovered, he got up, and he came toward us. And oddly enough, I think he was happy to see us, because he reached in the bottom drawer of his desk, and he pulled out two diplomas. And he laid them on the desk and he told us that if we promised to never, ever, ever come back to West Virginia Wesleyan College again, even for an alumni function, we could graduate that day. <laughs> and I think it's safe to say that we were the first people to graduate from West Virginia Wesleyan College with a triple major in swinology, aeronautics, and submarine engineering.
But the best thing about it was that it finally solved an argument between my parents because my mother had always said that I would graduate from college one day, but my father said that he thought I wouldn't graduate from college until pigs flew. Thank you. When Pigs Fly, a story told for you by the great West Virginia tall tale teller Bill Lapp. A pleasure to bring that story to you. And also stories from David Vanadia, who told us that story, Think, Live, Fly. And, of course, a conversation with Antonio Kosha, the wonderful storyteller, and mime. That was a pleasure to bring to you today. And at the top of the hour, that story from Bob Reiser, Ishtar. A pleasure to bring all these stories to you today. And we hope that you'll join us at byuradio.org slash There you'll find an archive of all of the episodes of the show, each one filled with stories for you and your family. And, of course, our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.